Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 183rd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's ready to go back-to-back in a world without the GAC. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Lovely to be here again, yet again. How are you uh, this fine evening? A little cooler this time of the year? Still recovering from a devastatingly long week at Fan Expo. Last Wednesday through Sunday. Um, Fan Expo being the San Diego Comic-Con of the North and the second biggest nerd Comic-Con in North America. Um, Over 100,000 people on location. And it was pretty crazy. Sounds like it was a good time, at least. I saw you sold a couple odds and ends there. Yeah, we did several thousand in a single table booth, um, mostly focused on toys and art collectible, like art toy collectibles, um, but also set up a little bit of high-end magic, like $200 plus cards, starting with revised duels and then on up to some beta duels and a lot of cool stuff in between. And uh, managed to sell about $1,000 worth of Magic product, including some old Commander decks and some Modern Horizon stuff and a couple of Gaia's Cradles. It's good times. Now, I'm surprised only because I would have expected it to not really be a go-to-sell-stuff event. Uh, well, we, we have our own table. Like, we're a vendor there. Yeah. Uh, so, there are probably something like similar to san diego comic-con there's rows and rows and rows and rows of vendors like it takes hours to walk through the place um takes up the main convention downtown toronto which is a gigantic facility with multiple levels underground and the convention pretty much takes over the whole thing and i think that it's weak like way way weaker than say a 95 booth at a major gp um because magic folk tend to think of our own events as kind of the place to, to be and where to go to get stuff and that's true um, it was also the same weekend as the GP in Vegas, which obviously was quite popular. So I'm sure that pulled away even some of the local people. Um, but there's just so much traffic there that most of the people that bought from me seem to be relatively casual. Like even like the cradles sold to an EDH guy, not a not a legacy guy. Hmm. Um, and pretty much every conversation I had was about Commander. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I haven't, you know, we were there one weekend, what was going on, but I haven't ma- managed to make it inside yet. Maybe uh, next year. So I, I mean, I could hook you up with a staff like. pass one day because Ellie hates to be there anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, I know Leanne would want to check it out, uh, my wife, because um, she wanted to go the one time we were there, but it was, you know, it didn't really fit with our schedule. So maybe next year. As we'll it turns out, it I'm, I'm related to one of the actors on The Flash, I think it is, like my dad's wife's half sister or something. Um, is an actress on The Flash. So apparently we're trying to get hooked up with family passes for San Diego Comic-Con next year. So that would be my first time at that event. Uh, not really looking forward to the lineups for that, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I got to tell you, the whole standing in line for hours to listen to a nerd talk about nerd crap is like not appealing. Uh, you might have found the video game section at San- at uh, Fan Expo and probably San Diego Comic-Con appealing just from the sense of getting to play a bunch of stuff like months early and um, people were playing borderlands three and a bunch of other stuff and they it, had some 
esports facilities set up. I think there was a Rocket Ball. What's the one where you use cars? To Rocket score? League. Rocket League. There was a Rocket League tournament on site, not too far uh, from where our booth was. Okay. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm. I feel like I'm like almost like a closet nerd. Like I don't go out of my way to like hide it or not. You know, I'm not ashamed of it. Well, a little bit, but at the same time, it's like all this type of stuff just seems to miss me. Like I just have no interest in a lot of those aspects of the culture and the activity and that type of thing. So I don't know. I, I would I definitely want to check it out, though. I I very much feel like I am over conventions because we've worked twenty. It's it's funny because people sometimes talk about us like we have no bending experience, but. At least in my case, I have plenty, actually. I've spent 10 years and probably done 50 or 60 different major conventions, um, just more on the toy side than the magic side. Um, and I'm definitely over all that, that whole scene. Like, it was coming from a white-collar digital world. It was intriguing 10 years ago to be doing retail, but I have fulfilled, like, checked that box <laughs> and have no desire to go much deeper. And in fact, we used to do five or six shows a year, and we're down to just the one because this one's the most profitable. And I'm happy to have the additional spare time now that we have Alara. Yeah, oh yeah, I bet, I bet. It does seem like it's the type of thing that, then you know, again, like I would go once, maybe twice, but the novelty would wear off pretty fast. I think. Knowing you to whatever extent I do, I think that's probably true. Um, it's interesting. I, I like to walk the floor because I usually get pulled into buying something that I didn't know existed. Just a little know connection point where with some other nerd thing i'm up to so because i'm dming uh for dungeons and dragons i'm always looking for like cool monsters and set pieces and stuff and one of the coolest miniature series out there out of japan is the uh blind boxes for monster hunter um obviously quite a popular video game uh, in the last couple of years uh, and the franchise has been popular for the better part of a decade and they've got some really cool uh like i guess they're about anywhere from three to eight inch uh, vinyl monsters that you can pick up. And I was grabbing a bunch of those blind boxes. And it was also extra special to be there because the San Diego Comic-Con exclusive showed up after all. When we were setting up, we thought that the Hasbro booth was dead and gone because it's usually at the end of our aisle and it was missing. So we figured, oh, well, this is going to be bad and good because we won't be able to get our hands on the exclusives, but we also won't be competing with Hasbro's booth to sell toys. Um, but as it turned out, Electronic Boutique, which you guys would know as GameStop, um, partnered with Hasbro to unload all of their stuff. And they had the biggest booth in the whole complex. It was probably, geez, I don't know, 8,000 square feet. It was huge. Um, and they had all the standard Comic-Con exclusives, including the Magic set. And they were at the Canadian equivalent of what they were at at San Diego Comic-Con. So I managed to snap off 12 uh, units of the admittedly not super popular San Diego Comic-Con exclusive, but I'm hoping that this is a reverse arbitrage play into Europe because the lowest listed price uh, on MCM is something like 265 euro. And these things worked out to about 104 US. Still electronics boutique up there. I, I remember it being EB here years and years ago uh, when I was young, but I didn't realize that they had kept that name up in Toronto. That's yeah, fun. Yeah. Retail's in a time warp up, up here. We still have Toys R Us. Um, oh. All over the country. Um, hmm. Because it was a, I guess a unique, it wasn't a division so much as it was a unique entity. 
like that was licensing the name or whatever. And it was profitable up here because the demographics are better in Canada in general in the major cities than they would be on well, average in the U.S. It was profitable here, too. Uh, that's not why it got <laughs> shut of. down. Sort of. I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to get started on venture capital <laughs> yeah. in, in the intro of our show here. And I'm sure our listeners don't want me to either. We, we've already been over the topic of how they screwed over the Toys R Us brand and discarded it pointlessly. Yeah. Um, okay. Hey. Our show is something I'm looking forward to. And there's a bunch of valuable information for all of you. It's produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. And wouldn't you know it, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. I bet you, just guessing, we have four segments this week. Uh, You are correct. I didn't have a clever answer quick enough to (laughs) tell you now. Um, Yes, segment one are top movers. We will look at the cards that have moved the most in price this week. And there has been no shortage, what with the big ban and restricted list update. Uh, segment two is our cards to watch. James and I will run through some of the cards we think have a positive future ahead of them. Segment three, our metagame week in review. Uh, we don't have a specific event to look at because we haven't been able to find any results with the new Hogak, uh, post-Hogak meta. Um, but we can talk about what we've read, what we've thought about, uh, what we've daydreamed about. So we'll discuss that a little bit. And then segment four, topic of the week, uh, maybe different types of specs. Um, sort of some different archetypes there to look for and, and a way to categorize them. I think we a lot of us do this sort of intuitively, but we're going to try and talk about it a little more uh, methodically, um, outline some strategies here because it helps you frame them correctly for yourself. Let's get started, though. Uh, first card of the week here is uh, one of mine from last week. I had a, a good week here, I guess. Animate Dad foils out a... Um, Eternal Masters, it looks like 7 to 11 for about a 50%, 60% gain. That was one of my picks last week, and I think people kind of took off with it, but I think that's going to work out well for them in the future. The question will be whether they, um, you know, any of the copies really sell, but I would be I would be surprised if they don't. So, of course, the big, mo- big news uh, yesterday, August 26th, was that Hogak did indeed catch a ban, and contrary to popular opinion... Uh, Faithless Looting caught a ban as well, which probably upset the apple cart in modern just about as much as Hogak disappearing. Um, I would say it, I would say more for yeah, sure. It at least impacts the greatest number of decks. Hogak was mostly a one trick pony, um, although there were a couple of different variations of the deck. Uh, Faithless Looting was deeply embedded in five or six major decks um, who all now need to either find a suitable replacement that puts them a half turn or a turn behind on the clock or reconstitute themselves into some completely new configuration while at the same time unlocking um, a whole bunch of, I suspect, mid-range and, and control action in the format that won't have to meta quite as hard against the graveyard. Yeah, the, the Faithless Suiting Band was really wild. And I think it's something that we all kind of figured would come eventually, but I don't think anyone was expecting it now because we hadn't seen Modern Horizons be modern horizons yet like modern horizons came out with hogak so of course 
Like he, you know, we haven't seen Modern Horizons do its thing without Hogak in the way. And it was like, okay, my, Wizards will take out Hogak. Uh, we'll get to see what Modern Horizons can really do now that it's not sharing space with this. And uh, and Wizards just said, no, we're going to toss Faithful Sitting too, and really, really move things around. So uh, definitely a surprise for pretty much everyone, although not uh unappreciated and And i think and a lot of people said they really they they're excited about modern now and i and i can get on board with that i i completely agree i think it feels like it really does something for the format that needed doing yeah and the funny part is that the the other card involved for modern was stoneforge mystic of course which was a card that had spiked in advance of the bnr announcements a few different times over the last couple of years it was kind of a running meme in the mtg finance community that people would, you know, run the price up on this card by draining all the inventory and then sell into the hype of a potential unbanning. And then this time it kind of seemed like people were quiet ahead of time, not really seeing the Stoneforge Mystic unbanning coming. And then it set off an absolute firestorm when it was announced because people were rushing all over the internet trying to buy up copies and play sets of original foils going for astronomical prices, the GP promos that we told people to pick up a ways back making people a lot of money um and now it just remains to be seen whether stoneforge can really uh, pull its weight in the format or not yeah and i i'm inclined to think that it's not going to be that big of a deal but you know my thought regarding that was predicated on faithful suiting still being in the format basically um you know if you look back historically every time wizards unban something modern it tends to do a lot less than we all thought it would do you know ancestral visions jace um sword of the meek like all these cards keep getting unbanned and it's like oh they don't actually matter so i'm i'm you know cautiously optimistic but stoneforge does seem pretty safe as far as unbans go i have to admit but you know i could be wrong the main argument that i'm hearing from some pros um questioning whether this was a good idea is that it's kind of like twin that the package around stoneforge it plus the accoutrement a a sword of fire and ice or a sword of feast and famine plus batter skull um, and potentially a couple of other pieces can slot into enough other shells that it may narrow things in the same way that having Karn the Great Creator plus Microsynth Lattice out of the sideboard and its tool associated toolbox um, ends up popping up in a whole bunch of decks. And that if you put enough of those kind of predetermined um, you know, tool sets out there into modern, then the format may get a little narrower instead of getting wider. So the next couple of months are going to be very a very interesting test of the, those comments to see, you know, does Stoneforge post up as a pretty solid but not earth-shaking card? Or does it, you know, narrow the format even further? I mean, it's hard to imagine any being any more narrow than when we were living in Pogax, Hogax world, but I'm curious. I'm curious to see where things are going to end up. Um, we, we're biting on segment three here. So... This was all lead into your segment two or your second card for the week, right? For the top movers. Yeah. So because of Stoneforge Mystic getting unbanned, uh, Sword of Fire and Ice and Sword of Feast and Famine are on the move. Sword of Fire Ice, Darksteel Edition uh, going from 80 to 125. I think that's supposed to be foils, not non-foils. And the MPS copy was also up about 35%. No huge surprise. Although I've been telling people, I think Stoneforges are a sell. I think these swords are a sell. Um, because if even if they're doing well in the format, 
Stoneforge is a four of fine, but they probably are going to reprint it within the next year if that's the case. So you want to be out early, not late. And the hype is hard right now. And we don't know whether it's going to be good or not. So you don't want to sit around and wait. With original foils of the swords, I don't think you're in a huge rush because it's going to be hard for there to be a lot of downward pressure on them. But for the non-foil swords, I'd be happy to get out. In fact, I was selling Feast and Famines like 10 bucks below market this morning, happily. Oh, um, yeah, I I think that all of the swords are going to go up in price as we're seeing here. But again, people are only going to buy one at a time. Typically, you're not going to need a place set of Sword of Fire and Ices. Um, I actually went and um, I put the Masterpiece swords in my article yesterday because I think they're, or I would, which would be Monday for people listening. Um, I think those are generally the best shot for these if you're going to go anywhere because suddenly there's a much cleaner, much bigger reason to own Masterpiece Swords than there was before and you only ever need one. So it doesn't feel as bad shelling out for the really cool one because you don't have to buy the whole playset, which was you know one of the issues we talked about with the expeditions. And one of the things that's nice about the swords is that they are very popular in EDH. So that demand, uh, chunk of demand, was already present in the market. And now we're adding modern on top of that. And they are mythics. So um, that's a lot working in their favor. They've also only ever been printed once into standard and then master set printings and masterpieces. So there aren't that many of them. A couple of them got judge promos um, with the old border. Uh, which are also very cool, but those have generally been less popular than I would have anticipated. Although I'm sure they're going to do just fine right now. The um, sure like the old bo- the judge promo sword of fire and ice and feast and famine I think are going to are probably already exploded. They just didn't make it onto the list, um, and don't see much in the way of pressure that's going to push them back the other way. However, I would say that the entire package related to Stoneforge is now very much on the agenda for reprint um, and fits so perfectly in whatever the next master set is or the one after that, that you can pretty much expect that some of, some of those pieces will show up. Yeah, I I would mostly agree with that. Um, I don't know if they're going to be in a rush to reprint swords because they've got them out there, but I could see it. I could see it. There, there was some They're speculation. not going to do all of them. No. Well, and, and the thing with these master set is there's always 30 or 40 likely candidates and then you get five or six. So, um, Right. There was some conversation in our Discord um, amongst the pro traders talking about could they print Stoneforge Mystic into, say, something like Throne of Eldrain? Like, sure, core as a creature type is a little odd on that planet, but it's not impossible. Um. And I would expect there to be equipment in Throne of Eldraine because it has a heavy knight theme. Like, not knight as in night and day, but knights as in knights of the round table. Um, and I'll be very surprised if we don't get some swords and or shields there. Mm-hmm. There, so, I mean, swords and shields are in pretty much every magic set at this point anyway, so it wouldn't feel totally out of place to include them. Well, I mean, they've taken it pretty easy on equipment if you look at the last six or seven sets. Um, since, since they gave us vehicles and Kaladesh, um equipment's been very much toned down and on purpose there has been some discussion from Mar- uh, marrow's side of things about artifacts in general getting colored mana costs more frequently so that they are not so hard to balance as cards that can just fit into any old deck um 
which is you know the classic the classic artifacts problem. So we'll see, we'll see. Um, next on next on our list, we've got foil copies of Necropotent instead of uh, Iconic Masters. Um, this wasn't because it got unbanned in anything, but because in the un the banning and unbanning announcement, uh, Watsi mentioned that they had considered unbanning it, I believe, for vintage. And so the IMA foils yeah. being the only foil copies of Necropotence, they jumped from twelve to twenty for about a sixty-seven percent gain. Which is kind of funny, especially because people are. Uh, I remember Ari Lax was saying like the story here isn't that Stoneforge Mystic was unbanned; it's that Wizards is considering even thought about unbanning Necropotence, which seems insane. Um, it's kind of a funny, a funny take, but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe uh, that card is pretty busted uh, and they still have unbanned minds desire. So like, I don't think they're that crazy. I think at Canadian nationals in 1997 in the final four rounds, I was playing five color green with like river boas and I was playing against like, Back to back to back necro decks, and it was yeah. just a massacre. And you were winning. No, they were destroying me. The, the card yeah. advantage in that deck and the ability to pitch cards to um, the I want contagion something. There was a black pitch card from the same cycle as Force of Will that let you put two minus two minus one counters on creatures, and it mm. just ate my deck alive. Uh, yeah, Necropotence is not a fair card. Uh, <laughs> turns out, big surprise there. Next on the list, we got Rune Scar Demon out of uh, Iconic Masters as well. Foils you called last week, and they went indeed went from seven to twelve. There wasn't a whole lot left, so once the pro traders got at them, the price popped up a little bit, and we'll see if the market will bear that result out for a significant period of time. Good luck, everyone. Uh, also have a Fetto Runecaster out of Scourge, foils from 10 to 20, clearly on the back of the Morph deck. The people are starting to get their hands on these latest EDH decks. I noticed a couple of different retailers were had these decks marked as sold out, including on Cool Stuff. Uh, several of them hmm. were sold out, and it's unclear to me whether that is a marketing tactic or uh, they're just selling that well. Um, and if they are, I think we can expect that some of these obscure foils that are related um, will probably see pressure probably on a four to six week horizon or whenever throne of eldraine spoilers start and get people all distracted i could see um you know maybe their distributors ran low or something like that and that's why there's they're having uh trouble keeping them in stock um i did notice too by the way that the morph deck is more popular now than it was you'll notice it um atla uh, and to a lesser extent, the Esper generals had taken the crown as the most popular generals out of Commander 2019 at the start here. Um, but the Madness General Anji has really gained some ground there. Uh, and um, so has the Morph Commander. Still not, it looks like, ahead of anybody, but way closer than she was before. So maybe there's more demand there than we realized. I don't know. Well, it's pretty, like... Uh, Anji Falconrath has is at 166 decks reported in the past week on EDH Rec, which is mm-hmm. 30 or 40 ahead of Crick or Carrick and Atla Palani. Um, but Atla, Jared, El, uh, Elsha, Golos, and Kadena are all in the like 95 to 110 range, so roughly equivalent, as you said. Yep. The time will tell there. 
Um, Godsire out of Shards of Alara, uh, looks like we've seen the foils move from 20 to 40. This is based on the, uh, the populate deck because it's a 8-8 vigilance token that, well, it's an 8-8 vigilance token. It's pretty good. Um, Godsire Shards of Alara though. So those foils are real old. The only catch being that they have those foil Alara packs. Maybe those are finally worth the price of entry. Uh, some <laughs> and, and and anybody who remembers twelve those, years those later, all foil packs for Alara um, block should be keeping them in mind when we're evaluating these Throne of Eldraine collector boosters that we're also hyper about. Yeah, it's hard to say exactly what the similarity is there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure Wizards didn't forget about those either, but like that doesn't mean they won't make the same mistakes. So I don't know. I'm curious to see how. Where I know you're a little skeptical about how these boosters are going to play out. The latest uh, information I heard was that one of the major distributors in the U.S. was allocating one of the collector booster boxes for every 12 normal boxes sold. Uh, okay. So that makes them pretty rare, but not like super ultra crazy rare. Because if you imagine that, like, say, a couple of hundred thousand boxes are going to get opened in North America then you'd be and you're thinking it's like one out of every 12 so like roughly 10 percent ish um then it could still be you know about what we've talked about twenty thousand or so and we keep saying that premium product tends to show up in the 10 to twenty thousand range this seems like it's going to be maybe towards the higher end of that um but my understanding is that they're only available kind of up front so it's not like you're going to be able to get these two distributors in six months you it's basically this initial order period during the hype cycle for throne of eldraine and then done yeah and then they'll be floating hmm. around in the secondary market and maybe even some held back by distributors for all we know but yeah that it's a single print run okay fascinating fascinating curious to see where all that goes um stoneforge mystics the aforementioned unbanned card uh both foils and non-foils out of world wake the non-foils, 35 to 75, although I don't think they're there at the moment. Um, I'm going to look while we chat here, but I know I managed to sell a copy of the GP promos um, at 85 and 75, but and I, they had sunk down below 65 there for a little bit. I don't know what they are now. I'm looking. Um, but no surprise, the Stoneforges have gone pretty nuts. It looks like non just normal World Wake non-foils are sitting at very close to 60 right now. Uh, which is pretty high. I got to tell you, that seems way too high to me. Um, and in fact, the judge promo or the Grand Prix promos, which as far as I can tell are virtually identical to the judge promos, um, are actually as cheap as 63. So you can get the GP promos for basically the same price as the World Wake pack foils. Um, I think I like the World Wake pack, or I'm sorry, you can get the G- foil GP promos for the same price as the World Wake pack copies. And I think I like the World Wake art more, but the foil copies are still cool. So I don't know what to think there. I don't know which one you're supposed to own. But in any case, I, I think we're both on the same page that this is a sell right now. Because even if you want to play with it, the price is nuts due to the popularity. And it is not going to stay that high. Uh, over the next couple days and weeks as people start to get their hands on their copies well it like it might like the the rarer copies of the card could keep pushing um so judge promos and original pack foils and even the gp promos are rare enough versus demand because you know like 
Sure, they were GP promos, but GP participants got one. They didn't get four. So people, a lot of people need four now. Um, Maybe I'm biased because my friend has like eight of them because he went to a lot of GPs that year. Yeah. But and the thing is, like, I'm calling it a sell not because I believe it can't go up, but because I think there is easily as much risk as there is reward. And in that, you know, if you if you don't know which side you're leaning towards, it's time to sell. Yeah, well, this definitely falls into the, um, you know, sell into the hype zone. Like, yes, maybe it'll end up more expensive, but you're still better off just selling into the hype that exists and taking the money and running because the odds of it going up aren't high enough and how much it would go up by aren't enough to warrant not selling at this price and then seeing it crash to 30 when it just when it turns out it's not good enough. And, and the market's going to fill in here. Like there's only 38 oh, results yeah. for the GP promos right now. But every player that went to GP and has one of these sitting around is going to that doesn't want to play one of these decks with it is going to consider dumping it at the next buy list opportunity. And those are going to start oh, to yeah. turn the market. Ditto the yep. batter skull promo. Yep. Yeah. And uh, you figure a lot of people ordered theirs too. Um, and they haven't come in yet. You know, they, they got unbanned and people bought it and those haven't landed in players' hands yet. So wait until those spec copies start arriving um, and you'll see some more, some more on the market there as well. Exactly. Next on the list, we've got Soul Herder Foils and Modern Horizons. Foils going from 6 to 15. This is a card we talked about several times in the Pro Trader Discord recently. Um, a number of different members, including myself, uh, telling people that this was looking like it was going to be a thing. Card has 5 out a whole bunch of leagues in the Hogak uh, uh, time frame. Post-Hogak deck probably is just as good, if not better. And it's a really great casual and EDH card as well. Um, it's an uncommon, sure, but foil uncommons were, you know, there wasn't a foil per pack in Modern Horizons. And again, the set is not at nearly the print run of a standard set. So even foil uncommons can become quite rare if enough people want them. And it's played as a four of in the modern deck. So not super surprised to see this taking off. And I think it it is a positive signal that the EV of Modern Horizons cards in general, you know, Given that we're reaching past peak supply now at just about the same time that Hogak being banned is resetting um, possibilities in many ways for the format, uh, I see very good things for Modern Horizon singles in the next 6 to 12 months. Oh, yeah. All of these feel like they get a new lease on life because now you have this more open, evolved you know, room for for growth in the format and even if a lot of that stuff doesn't pan out it's still exciting to look at and think about and try your deck so i think everything looks even better than it did a week ago essentially primordial mist from commander 2018 moving from four to in theory 10 on the back of morph decks and i know some of our members have been reporting selling them on tcg and ebay um so there's definitely some interest there um batter skull from new phyrexia both foils and non-foils i think this is the non-foil moving from 17 to 46 uh yeah on the yes primordial misses no, no, only no, non-foil no 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 on batter skull um, oh yes foil, that's non-foil sorry yeah fo- foils moved from 40 to 100 however um and there there is also that gp promo floating around for that card yeah i managed to grab two of those for a reasonable price but i don't know how much that'll do for me i i, I slept through the entire announcement cycle because i was <laughs> exhausted so i basically took the I mean, t- well, basically taking most of this week off anyway, but I took 
the morning on Monday um, to recuperate. And by the time I got up, I was like, well, sometimes you just admire the action from the sidelines. Yep. There was one or it was some other band announcement that happened. And I just like, I don't remember what the deal was, but it was the same thing. Just, oh, okay. That happened. Um, Bass Bond, uh, revised edition copies 10 to 30. This was unrestricted in vintage. So now you can play four fast bonds, which is also an insanely unfair magic card, which, uh, if you've ever played cube, you already know that. Um, but you're selling to vintage players. So like, eh, <laughs> not a big market there. Feel like anyone that's going to play four fast bonds and vintage is probably looking to shell out for, something other than the revised copies, you know, they might step it up and get the unlimited ones. Well, I mean, um, maybe. so if you have I a mean, budget maybe. vintage players, I mean, maybe <laughs> the, the other, the other problem is that the vintage tournament in Vegas had a, a huge ethical problem emerge where the winner that was, was accused. old school, old school. Sure. But I mean, the, to my mind, the people that are playing old school, are the people that are playing vintage, I'm, I'm sure there's a tremendous amount of crossover there because if you own a Lotus in boxes and the power nine, then, you have access to both of those formats. Um, and I would think that there's anybody who might've been thinking about getting in on that might have a, a slight bad taste in their mouth from the negative exposure that comes from the winner of the old school format tournament in Vegas, having been basically accused of running a 16 card sideboard with double cop reds in it. And it just so happened that it was uh, a guy who was a big deal back in the day that it was the progenitor of the deck, a deck that was written kind of one of the earliest decks to be analyzed in magic's history. Um, talking about Brian Weissman here. Yep. And uh, so now, I mean, now this guy's <laughs> reputation is very much in question and I don't know. I, 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 I guess your earlier point is the more relevant one that the format is relatively narrow um, and people might want more impressive copies of a card like Fastbond. Yeah, like why, you know, if you're going to bother, if you're going to play fast bond, like pay, you know, 80 bucks or well, probably not 80, but yeah, it's it's a it's a tight market if you're selling to uh, vintage players, right? Um, Following that is Oriox Salvagers Foils out of Modern Masters. We've got these like four to ten. I don't have a great thought here other than maybe they did well in a vintage event and I just missed it. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts here? No, nothing that comes to mind. Okay. Well, uh, after that, is, we got a couple here that I'm not really clear on. We also had Sanctum of Eternity. These are the Commander in 2019, the um, the land that... Oh, hold on. Let me, let me make sure I get the rules text here right for you guys because I'm not 100% positive. This is the land. It, it adds a wastes. And then for two mana, return a commander you own from the battlefield to your hand. Um, so you can bounce your commander to your hand. Uh, pretty solid, useful for certain commanders that have way more come to play effects than others. Um, but this is Audit Commander 2019. So this is new on shelves right now. And it's the first printing of the card. Uh, maybe, I guess this is people realizing they want to own a bunch of this. Uh, I, I mean... I, I, I'm not sure if I'm reading EDH rec wrong, but I don't see this card showing up in the commander 2019 tallies. Uh, it is, it is, that is the set symbol for commander 2019 and scryfall says it's commander 2019. So this is a 20 commander 2019 card that much. I'm sure of. We'll have to do a little more research on that and get back to people next week. 
You, you don't believe me that it's in that set? <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just saying that on EDH rec, they're not tracking it as as being reported played. So I don't know where the card, hmm. like where to research the card. As at all? Correct. Uh, let's see. Sanctum of Eternity. I've got it in 148 decks, if yeah. you look at it specifically. So pretty minimal play pattern there. So maybe somebody, maybe somebody just decided to spec on it. I mean, that's possible, right? Somebody I'm just trying to make it. sure that this isn't in some kind of ancillary product. You sure this was printed uh, in the decks? I, I don't know where else it would have shown up, right? Like what ancillary product is there for Commander 2019 that would get labeled as Commander 2019? Yeah, nothing that strikes me. Yeah. Huh. Uh, huh. I mean, if it's if the if the price jump is real and there's no copies on TCG Player, which would be my next thing to check, I'd be certainly looking at Europe to see if there's arbitrage. Yeah, I, I my my ears are perked up on this one because it seems like a weird card to have spiked, um, especially with a fairly low play profile in in. Uh, an EDA track right now, you know, 150 decks. I mean, that's not too many decks, right? So what's going on there? All right. I need to do some more research uh, on that one. Well, we got another one. That's a good question. A big question mark is storm entity. Um, foils out of future site, a dollar to four bucks. You got any thoughts on that one? I mean, I, there might've been a meme deck that we missed, but otherwise I just assume that, you know, the dollar to $4 movement doesn't mean much. Okay. More than in the case of an old foil, like a future site foil, just means there was hardly any left, and somebody decided to snap off a few, hoping that the buy list would reward them. Yeah, Storm Entity was a funny card, but I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's breaking in the modern even without Hogak here. Yeah. All right, so Chainer Dementia Master out of Torment foils from fifty to about two hundred, if you believe that. Somebody was asking us about the card on on Twitter earlier today. Um, it's like an option for the Madness decks. Um, for the the Chainer one. Torment Foils are really old. They're also really good looking. Um, the card, somebody was telling me in response to the Twitter conversation that they had sold copies over 100 So I don't know if it's a $200 card, but it's somewhere in the $1 to $200 range. Um, similar to like, I, I put up a Risk the Redeemed Foil, uh, which is from Shadowmore, I want to say. And mm-hmm. same kind of thing. Anything, those foils from in that, you know, five or six years uh, in the the middle, uh, the middle years of magic, magic's current history, uh, tend to be pretty hard to come by, and it's hard for the market to restock them once the price tips over. Yeah, it's, you'll have difficulty selling them for the most part because there's just not going to be a lot of people out there in the market for them. But uh, I agree, there's just there's none that are going to show up at the same time, so you're not going to see many of these added after the fact. One of the points Jason's made many times is that and people have been talking about this in the discord as well this week is that some of the more obscure foils for something like the morph deck may not move right away because people might fill out the deck play with it for a while and if they like it a lot then they might foil it out so you might see sometimes you see foil movement delayed um, there's usually an initial hype spike on the foils um, when there's you know some news that's relevant, and then people need to get their hands in the deck, play with them for a while, and then we will see which commanders emerge as the most, uh, you know, consistent to appear given a longer time frame. You know, the ones that can survive past the Commander 2019 hype and, you know, take up a top 30 position in all of Commander. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're most likely to profit on your foils. 
Yeah, and it, it you know we we know that a lot of commander product players don't even start thinking about upgrades until they have the deck in their hands, uh, and it's been a couple weeks. You know they need to get some games and some reps in before they before they go from before they make up their mind. So um, yeah, some of these might get paid off. I'm hoping to see a, a resurgence in my dream chisels here because I didn't feel, I didn't sell my whole stack, so I need people to get on that train. Uh, Savine's Reclamation, another Commander 2019 card with a nice bump here, $250 to $11. Uh, this is the same deal as Sanctum of Eternity in terms of like what the card is. Same set, brand new, um, price, market price is showing eight or nine bucks. Um, the EDH rec number of decks that it's in is 109. So essentially the same deal. I think that what happened is the EDH population at large, uh, short of any one particular content producer, having spoken about these cards specifically, must have decided these were actually good and they wanted to play with them um, and went after all the spare copies on the market. Um, and this is just a reaction to that. It's possible somebody called it as a spec in the shadows and we just haven't caught up on it. Um, yeah. The card looks really solid. I mean, returning two permanents, three casting costs, or uh, sorry, a permanent at three casting costs or less, and then doing it twice the next time on the off the flashback is a relatively unique effect. Um, it's reanimation for any permanent type, so it can bring back important planeswalkers, enchantments, artifacts, creatures, etc. Um, that's open-ended synergy. So if you're if you when you're looking at new cards printed in the commander, the cards you want to focus on are low color requirements that have applications in a bunch of different deck styles. Sure, a morph card is good while morph decks are hot. And if a morph commander became one of the top 20 commanders of all time, they might stay relatively hot. But it's much more likely that most of that stuff will fade into the background in the, in the constantly expanding tapestry of the commander landscape. Um, whereas something like a Smothering Tithe just fits into every white deck. And a Savine's Reclamation isn't going to fit into every white deck, but it's going to fit into a lot of white decks. Yeah, pretty much everyone will want to run that card, right? Like there's not a lot of people. Well, shouldn't say that, but a lot of decks of a lot of different stripes are going to want that card. So you're, you're right on the money there. It's, it's a, you can play it in a lot of decks uh, and it's got universal appeal. Like currently it's only in the top 30 cards from Commander 2019. And that's just looking at new cards. But I would suspect it will post up in the top 10. Because I see a lot of stuff in between it and things like Dockside Extortionist, which is currently number one, um, that don't look like they will stay there for the for the duration. Yes, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So, um, yeah, let's finish off the week here with uh, Dreams Grip uh, foils out of mirror, non foils out of mirror, and sorry, uh, twenty five cents maybe thirty cents to two dollars. So not a not a really profitable movement. Uh, but this is as far as I can tell, based on the Twiddle deck. Um, unless you have another thought here. No, it's definitely based on Twiddlestorm playing, running the card. Okay. I'm just I'm curious what uh, Card Kingdom is paying on these right now in non-foil. I mean, the bulk guys just like as we said earlier on this deck must be having a field day. Yeah, I can't imagine thousands of like these Christmas. In a, in, if you have a big bulk collection, there's tons of them. They're paying 39 cents. So if if you believe that this was available at a quarter a few weeks ago and you happen to have a bunch of these, I mean, I must have some of these sitting around in, in my collection that I can add to my next buy list order. Well, there you go. Lucky you. I mean, everybody probably does. Anybody who played in that era, if you, if you drafted Mirrodin, you probably have some dream grips sitting around. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, okay. 
So that wraps up our top movers this week. Uh, I expect we'll be seeing a lot more ex- new exciting cards in the coming weeks with the Hogak ban as people start to figure out what's good. Um, let's move on to segment two, our cards to watch. Uh, James, would you like to get us started? Sure. So here's a card that has been popular in casual circles for ages. Occasionally sees play in modern, and when it does, it's a four of. Um, has only ever been printed twice in foil, and the original foils are like almost 15 years old, I think. Um, the card I'm talking about is Glimpse the Unthinkable, one of the linchpins in any mill deck, um, blue-black to knock 10 cards into the yard. I was fooling around with this like a couple of years ago in a janky delve build where I was looking to like leverage Gurmag Anglers and Tassigers um, off the back of like basically using Glimpse the Unthinkable as a mana boost. Um, and that didn't really go anywhere because didn't really take it anywhere. And I probably don't know what I'm doing, but <laughs> <laughs> there's no denying that it has been a staple in the tier three mill strategies in modern for ages and ages and ages. And even though that doesn't really matter at the competitive level, like I can't remember seeing a mill deck top eight, a competitive tournament. If it has, it's only happened once or twice. Um, but at the FNM level, this is the kind of deck that could easily pop up. You know, if, you, if you're at an FNM where 30 people show up, one of them probably is playing mill. Um, and Glimpse the Unthinkable Foils from IMA, uh, much like some of your recent IMA picks, are currently around five or six bucks. And I could see those easily draining out, probably not tomorrow. There's no immediate impetus on this card. But I could see stashing away two or three play sets at the $6 range and assuming that in the year, maybe 18 months, I'm going to get to buy list them at 10 to 12. I think Mill at any given time is surprisingly viable in modern as like a out of nowhere shot type of thing. I actually played this in... um, in one of the Grand Prix, I want to say it was one of the Grand Prix in Detroit, and I just missed uh, doing well with it. Um, and it was a very potent deck, and it was a little draw dependent, and it was missing some of the tools that are available now. Uh, I do like the deck uh, on any particular given weekend, um, and foils of Glimpse the Unthinkable at six bucks seem like nothing compared to what this card has cost in the past for foils. So that's certainly uh, tempting there. Um, so, so I can, and I like the IMA picks at this stage too. There's a couple of other things. One of them is that yes, Hogak just got banned. Um, but Glimpse the Unthinkable was run in a 5-0 Hogak list as a four of hmm. in the last 24 hours before the banning, <laughs> some last minute tech adjustments. And that led me to thinking like, maybe it could find its way into some other graveyard deck in the future. Like if they just touched on that as a potentiality for modern. Maybe my theory about it being a, you know, treating it like a metamorphose, like a, well, I guess not like a metamorphose, but treating it like uh, a ramp effect um, wasn't all that crazy after all. Um, so OG foils, probably more to the point, are about are minimum $20 and the ramp up to 50 is very steep. So in a situation like that where OG foils are real expensive, you tend to see the gap close because people will have a hard time convincing themselves, especially since it's the exact same art still um, to go with the OG foils when they could get the IMA foils for a third of the price that will tend to push it up into the range that I'm expecting that 10 to $12 thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely the type of card that will kind of sit, I think with a little bit of a lower price and, 
you know, it won't take much at all to push this over the edge. One event type of thing will really get things moving um, for it. All right, what's your first all pick right. this week? Uh, I'm kicking off the week with uh, Mishra's Bobble foils out of IMA. Uh, I'm really, I'm not trying to get on the IMA train, but I keep just kind of stumbling into these cards and the numbers are start finally starting to look decent. Uh, foil Mishra Bobbles right now. So non-foil Mishra's Bobbles from IMA are like eight bucks. Foils from IMA are 11 there's like the multiplayer is very low and we still see about a two to one on in most places for most cards. So to see a multiplier that low means one of the cards is pretty strong, most likely. And I don't think that it's the non-foils. Um, it's very popular in a lot of Urza builds and a lot of people are predicting that Urza is going to get better with the Hogarth ban. It's also a card um that i've seen referenced multiple times when people are talking about post hogak lists so we already know it's good in urza lists and other decks that are similar De- and De- we also well, know it's death shadow yeah death shadow right like that we know the decks that it's good in right like that shadow urza and um the older versions of lantern control and various versions of that so we know that it's good in those places those decks are all better suited today than they were a couple days ago um we don't know where else it's going to see play basically it's just it's got a good play pattern and it's going to rise um, and with that foil multiplier, I'm on board. So I like the IMA foils at probably, you know, 11, 12 bucks. I think you can probably ride these up to 25 pretty, pretty comfortably. One of the things that's nice here is that replacing this effect is very unlikely. Like Mish's Bobble is about compressing the overall size of your deck from 60 to effectively 56 cards. And also getting, typically it's being used to get an artifact in your yard um, for one reason or another. And... All of that is not the kind of thing Wizards prints very often. Like, it's you really aren't likely to displace this from the format. It's also extremely unlikely to ever catch a ban or anything because it, it's never going to be oppressive. There's almost no way to make it oppressive. Yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, it, it could be, you can consider an enabler. Like, it has that concern going for it, right? Ban the enablers, not the payoffs. But overall, I agree that it looks. It looks pretty tasty. Um, All right, so that one's pretty solid. Enjoy. Um, this one's a little little weird, but uh, I picked up eight of these foils for two bucks a piece from Card Kingdom this afternoon because it just seemed absurd to me that a card that is a three of in a deck that was top eighting tournaments in the presence of Hogak and is probably going to continue to top eight tournaments post Hogak and had a life long before Hogak. Um, in terms of the deck itself, not this card. Um, the bottom line is that Scrapyard Combiner foils should not be 2 to $3. If you are a modern playable rare from Modern Horizons, and you are played in at least one deck in the format, and they run you as a 3 or a 4 of, you should be 10 to $20, maybe $20 plus, six months out. I would compare Scrapyard Combiner arguably to Goblin Engineer, a card that we've been real high on the whole time. Goblin Engineer has really only showed up in one deck in the format, and Urza. And admittedly, Urza's in a good position, but Hardened Scales doesn't look like it's any less likely to succeed in, in the post-Hogak world. And since it's run as a three of, not super excited about the non-foils, but you can get those for 25 cents. I mean, it can't be 
the, the multiplier between this card and Goblin Engineer doesn't make a lot of sense to me, given that the arguments for both are mostly centered in modern, and both of them have a little bit of appeal, like modicum appeal of appeal in EDH, um, based on their fairly specific interactions there. Um, I would say Goblin Engineer is a little better in Commander than uh, Scrapyard Combiner, but it's interesting. I don't think people have really grasped that this thing is a um, kill spell nullifier stapled onto a tutor because this goes and gets three or four other constructs and constructs in the affinity build so i don't see it getting kicked out of this list anytime soon this is a a funky card for sure um and not one that like i would typically be too keen on but i think the argument that it's a very playable it's a playable foil modern horizons rare is probably um really the relevant text here um and like you said it's a sacrifice outlet that also is a tutor and you know we're going to keep getting constructs over the course of magic and who knows which ones we'll get um but it certainly seems like we get some pretty crazy ones at some point in the future so i like it from that perspective that uh you know you've got a a three dollar rare, a foil three foil rare for three bucks seems quite playable. Uh, it's good in some decks and uh, might end up being sneakily good uh, in the way that some cards are rather unassuming, but end up much better than you would have anticipated. And Wizard seems committed over time to printing additional constructs, right? So, oh yeah, they do it all the time. So this thing tutoring constructs could eventually be relevant to EDH. If you get a construct focused commander, for instance, this would be an auto include. Oh, yeah, I could see them going down that road at some point, you know, eventually adding that as one of their themes for a particular year. Keeping in mind that one of the prevailing theories is that within the next 18 months, we're going back to Mirrodin, which is now new for Uh, Phyrexia. Right. That too. That too. They like to do an artifact set every few years or so. And Kaladesh is few years in the rearview mirror at this point. Yeah, it has been a little while since Kaladesh. We it feels very recent, but it's it's further away than you might think it is. And they don't they know artifacts are popular, so they don't like to drag their feet on those too long. Well, especially since Kaladesh had a very specific focus, like energy, which was clearly a mistake for standard. Um, but then vehicles being you know a very unique tangent on the artifact uh, family tree versus where they're what they will probably do with new Phyrexia. Right. Um. Okay. So my second pick for the week is Sky Shroud Claim. Uh, foils out of Battle Bond. You can pick these up for about nine bucks right now, eight to nine dollars. Sky Shroud Claim is like the original two land fetcher or fetches two fetcher of two lands. Two forests in particular. Yeah, in this case it's two forests. And Sky Shroud Claim comes with that beautiful line of text which is search your library for for two forest cards not basic uh and put them onto the battlefield not tapped so you can go get like two dual lands and put them in the play untapped uh this is a pretty sick card um a long time staple in mod in edh uh it's an eighteen thousand edh rec decks right now so that's a lot definitely yeah definitely a popular one uh the original foils are like 30 25 30 bucks uh, out of the nemesis um and the, like i said these are about nine dollars right now supply is starting to dwindle i've had this I've, I've looked at this card a couple times um and it's never been quite right to pick it but i feel like the numbers are finally where i want them to be able to pick it 
by the way, it is the 14, 15, 17, 18, 19, 20 most, most popular card, green card in modern or in EDH to give you an idea of its, of its popularity. So I think that, you know, nine bucks for a diminishing foil of the 20th most popular modern card seems pretty state, pretty solid. I just put two in my cart. So, okay. <laughs> let's just say that means well, there, that's the James seal of approval. Okay, what's hey, your last that, pick for that the argument week? is flawless. <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> the only the only thing to say in the other direction on that card is that it's a common, right? In Battlebond. Uh, uncommon. Uh, is it an uncommon? Oh, no, I'm no, no, no you're right, you're common. right. It is common. Battlebond Battlebond's coloring sucks because the Battlebond yeah, symbol yeah. has white in it. And I they always it. think those are Well, they deliberately yeah. made the commons white instead of black. Yeah, and it's real and annoying. A, yeah, super annoying. Because it, because you, you tend to, your eye tends to interpret the white as silver, given the heuristic that you've already developed for magic cards. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'm not surprised. Uh, but yeah, it's only ever been printed printed twice in foil. The other one was Nemesis. Nemesis was a million years ago. Most magic players don't have access to the original foils. The gap is huge. All good arguments. I like. Glad you, you like it. Yep. What do you got to finish? So- uh, thank you. Uh, I'm glad I'm doing somebody else a favor. Um, what, uh, what have you got to finish us off the week for us? I could have sworn I already called this card on cast, but I think we've just discussed it in discord so much that I, I I'm starting to blend conversations you and I have and in conversations we have with the membership. Um, but I think that given where the ladder's at for these foils, the time has come. Ice Fang Coatl is, was good, only good, not amazing in the world of Hogak, post Hogak likely to show up all over the place um if you believe that control decks have a new lease on life um in the coming format and you believe that ice fang quaddle is the kind of early game controlish card that digs for um the other car- combo pieces or uh control pieces that put them in control of the game then i think you can easily wrap your head around the fact that this uh almost always four of i i, I don't think i've ever seen a quaddle list that didn't run it as four um and the there are relatively few of these foils left the ladder is looking steep calling it at 16 to get to 30 within six months uh well you don't have to sell me on quaddle and in fact anyone who read my article monday will see that i put ice fang quaddle in there as a card to watch um using pretty much all the same arguments i said hey look you know this card is showing up in a bunch of different strategies in modern uh, even during the Hogak days, it's uh, we're about to see a lot more flexibility in the modern world. And specifically, not only are we going to see a little more flexibility with Hogak ban, but bet- between Hogak and Faithless Looting both going, you're slowing the format down considerably. Even if you put Hogak aside, Faithless Looting enabled like the Arclight Phoenix decks. It enabled various dredge decks. It enabled Gorio's Vengeance strategies. So it was never used in very fair games. Um, and adding, removing it from the format is definitely going to slow things down, which is very good news for cards that want to play a slightly longer game like Ice Fang Quaddle. So uh, it, it's, my argument wasn't based necessarily on like any particular strong 
logic. I'm like, you know, I'm not saying like, look, here, there's this deck that's suddenly doing really well that you need to be paying attention to. It was more like, I think this card is really good and things are getting better for it. And one of these days, this card is going to be $15 non-foil and you're going to wish you had bought them when they were a lot less than that. Yeah. And it's like, if you believe Jund has a, is in a good position heading into this format, point removal, of course, is bad against a card that replaces itself. Um, if it if you manage to get the right number of snow permanents in play, then it can trade with something big, regardless of how of its size. And it's just that it's that speed bump that mid range slash control decks tend to find a home for. And it's a very unique card. There there are not uh, you know baleful strix is in legacy, but it's not present in modern. And this is attempting to fill that role. Yeah. So the, the, proof, of, the proof of concept is well established. Yes, I agree. So I, I'm on board with uh, with Ice Fang Coatl and pretty much all of its various flavors here. All righty. So let's uh, seg on over to uh, Metagame Week in Review. We don't have results quite yet because we're recording this on Tuesday night, August 27th. So we're just able to review some of the, the lists that people are proposing out on social media um, that are kind of like trickling in. Um Obviously, people are doing a lot of testing with Stoneforge Mystic. So one of the things that has been getting tested, notably by Canister on Twitch stream uh, this morning, was basically a version of Urza that ditches Goblin Engineer in favor of Stoneforge Mystic, which helps fix the mana a little bit. Uh, Although arguably in a deck with Arkham's Astrolab, uh, the splash is pretty free. Um... But the idea here is that they can fit a Stoneforge Mystic package into the Urza build so that they're not necessarily leaning on Thopter Sword combo to finish the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- yeah, I, I don't... I don't like moving away from Goblin Engineer, mostly because I think Goblin Engineer is an awesome card, but I'm not the one who builds these decks, so I guess I can't really speak to it. Uh, I do think that Stoneforge Mystic is an insane combo with Urza. It just does everything that deck wants to do right like it gives you an artifact which is good for the construct token it gives you a, an artifact that taps for mana with the Talarian ability academy ability not only does it give you an artifact that taps for mana it's an equipment so you can actually tape tap it for free like your creature can still attack with vigilance it doesn't matter if the equipment's tapped yeah. um and it prolongs the game out until you can start activating the five mana ability i kind of i put this in my article money but i'm like it just those cards pair well except pair exceptionally well with each other and obviously, that's worth considering uh, whether Stoneforge will steal that spot from Engineer because Engineer's price is largely propped up by its presence in the Urza build. So how Urza ends up getting built a month out is going to influence whether how much Stoneforge retraces potentially and whether Engineer keeps pushing higher or retreats and waits for another opportunity to succeed. Well, it, it could be that you end up seeing a couple flavors of it, right? There might be a more aggressive version and a more defensive version um, or a combo version, I should say, in control uh, and a couple different stripes. I mean, Urza is certainly a strong enough card to warrant multiple builds, right? Like there could be more, just like there's multiple Teferi, the Time Reveler strategies, there could be multiple Urza strategies. Well, there was there was multiple uh, ways people were going at Hogak at, at a time um, yeah. during its dominance. So. One of the other decks I saw popping up here and there was a basically Amulet Titan build. That deck's been kind of off the radar for a while. Um, But this version runs three Karn the Great Creator. So it slips the Karn, Mycosynth, Lattice, 
package with a couple of other toolbox pieces in the sideboard into uh, the primetime builds. And I'm not 100% clear what they took out for those to free up those three slots. Um, but it's certainly interesting that this is yet another example of people experimenting with having kind of two avenues of attack. They still have the Prime Evil Titan into like Sun Home Fortress of the Legion. Um, oh, sorry, Slayer Stronghold to, to double strike and rack the opponent on the spot. But now they've got the Karn, the Great Creator, into Lattice as an alternative. Curious to see whether we'll see that top aiding anytime soon in a major tournament. There's certainly some valid strategies in here. Uh, and Amulet Titan is definitely back on the menu with Faithful Suiting Gone because it's a very fast deck that isn't, uh, it didn't rely on Faithful Suiting, right? In fact, it's probably one of the fastest decks that didn't rely on Faithful Suiting. There's also various flavors of Death Shadow being proposed. Um, everything from Grix's Death Shadow to Esper and people fooling around with a variety of other builds. Um, people messing around with uh, Living End decks again. This is Living End and As For Tolds. Uh, I think the most recent versions I've seen were using Curator of Mysteries, Windcaller, Avon, which is out of Modern Horizons. Might want to keep an eye on those foils if that became a staple in the Living End decks. Um, Striped Riverwinder fo- foils, I believe, and Curator Mystery foils at Abomin Cat uh, did pretty okay. Um, and these, of course, are also leaning on multiple copies of Electro Dominance uh, alongside as alongside as foretold to be able to cast their ancestral visions and living ends. Um, so curious to see whether that can make any progress. Certainly, a concept people have been struggling to make work for quite some time. Um, I think the take the takeaway here is the format is really going to slow down, right? You're going to see a lot of these strategies and cards that wanted to play at a slower pace, that wanted to hit turn four and build an engine are a lot more viable than they were a week ago, especially between Hogak and Stoneforge Mystic. Like kind of both of those working in tandem has produced that effect. The funny thing is, though, the things that made the format fast before Hogak got printed are still very much in play. Um so you know the you know burn is still setting the the burn style clock neo neo brand is in the format un untouched um, and certainly capable of doing nasty things um, and of course gets to leverage the adjusted mulligan rule um, the London mulligan to their advantage um, here's a more classic blue white Stoneforge Mystic list this is four path to exile four opt two spell snare four Stoneforge two mana leak three Snapcaster, three Force of Negation, a card who I think, which I think everybody can agree uh, is likely to have legs um, heading into the next year, two Vandalian Click, Detention Sphere, two Teferi Time Raveler, Sword of Fire and Ice, three Jace the Mind Sculptor, two Cryptic Command, Teferi, Hero of Nominaria, and Batterskull. I mean, as a blue-white control player, that's got to feel good putting that list down on the table. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Stoneforge Mystic does seem like a fantastic reward for everyone who wanted to play Time Raveler. That card just keeps getting better and better, huh? Yeah, and I mean, this this list is like the best of blue-white control from 10 years ago with all of the more busted elements they've recently printed. I mean, uh, it's very solid looking. We do have, like, essentially the entirety of Cobblade is now legal in Modern, which wasn't really a big deal to begin with, but, like... Just because it's in modern, it doesn't mean it's good enough. But at the same time, it's got a lot of new pieces, like Teferi Time Raveler. So, yeah, time will tell, I suppose. Uh, as we said before, Jund 
um, quite likely to be in good shape because Renan 6 uh, is such a powerful card that some pros I've heard have been calling it a mistake, um, suggesting that it could be too good in the format a little further down the road. Um, currently, I'm finding that hard to believe. Not that I find it hard to believe that the card is under-costed at 2 mana. Like, that's obvious at this point. Um, but that it doesn't seem to win games quickly enough to ever get flagged for a banning it the format would have to get very narrow and warped around it and i don't see how it has that impact the it certainly represses um you know creatures that it can ping so that may undermine strategies like humans uh spirits and some others um but I feel like there are elements in all of those decks and things like Affinity, et cetera, that can adjust to Ren and Six's presence. So I'm curious to see how that will play out. Ren and Six is going to be a, a difficult card because if it ends up being too good, it's not the type of card that wins games quickly, nor do I feel like it's the type of card that will really have a, a chilling effect on a metagame in the sense that you would just see nothing but run in six decks. Maybe, maybe that would what would happen. Um, it mostly, it's just going to set up. It's going to just feel too powerful and games are going to feel like they're warped around it uh, when it's in play, but as a two drop, it's going to be very insidious. It's not like it's going to be as noticeable. I think that's that card. It, I'll be curious to see the lifespan of run in six. I think that's a fascinating card and, and how it plays out. will tell us some interesting stuff about modern. It's in my black book right now because somebody's basically stealing one from me on, on eBay this week, <laughs> claiming it never arrived, um, in a way that is deeply suspicious. So, uh, it's a little tainted for me already, and I guess we'll have to see see what, see how things go. Well, that's that's the fault of running six that they somebody stole it from you. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's being sarcastic. That's not running six's fault. Oh, running six did nothing wrong. Hmm. You might be right. Yeah. All right, so <laughs> we're gonna have a lot more to talk about next week, and we'll probably try to get a modern expert on to guide us through the emerging format. Maybe we'll have Daniel Fournier on. Maybe we'll find somebody else. Um, we'll work on that. And uh, we're going to wrap the week up. Uh, topic of the week. Uh, we're going to discuss types of specs. It's one of the things that seems to come up a lot in the Discord forum. Um, how to identify and label opportunities and use those labels to lean on heuristics in terms of how you should think about certain specs and what you should do about them. Uh, part of which will uh, rely on a synergy between the, the style of spec that is under discussion and the way that you tend to interact with MTG Finance. Because if you're the kind of player who's just trying to build a collection as cheaply as possible, that's one thing. If you're the kind of person that is an armchair speculator trying to go after a few cards a month, that's another. If you're a little deeper into the scene like we are and you're constantly thinking about this stuff, that's a whole other thing. Um, so we wanted to go over, you know, just, and this isn't going to be a perfect list, but this is a fairly decent categorization of the different kinds of spikes that can go on. Um, 
the first super category that jumped out at me is what I would call a hype spike. And by this, I mean a spike that is driven by news. So there is something that is happening that is immediate and people haven't had enough time to let the facts speak for themselves. You know, uh, Stoneforge Mystic is unbanned is a, is a good example here of you have news emerging. It puts a bunch of different cards in play. Some get better, some get worse. And you don't know immediately unless you're super in touch with the format. And even then you probably need to compare your thoughts with some other people to really get your head wrapped around things. And some cards explode. So for instance, we saw Sword of Feast and Famine and Sword of Fire and Ice go up a lot in the last couple of days. Um, and if the news is real, and I think everybody can agree that whether or not Stoneforge Mystic becomes the you know a pillar of modern, it's, it's an important card, um, potentially dangerous. So the spikes around that I would call... I would subcategorize as a news domino. And what I mean by that is that Stoneforge is the news. You can make money on that. But if that's dried up, it has a bunch of other things that it touches and knocks over. And you're trying to figure out how many of them are relevant and how far away from the first domino you can go and still make money. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, it does. It sounds like you're getting a little far away from the hype spike concept, but yes, it all makes sense. Well, I mean, a hype spike is, is on news, but it depends what kind of news we're talking about. So I would contrast it to get that against something like a meme spike. So a meme spike is Saffron Olive is running some wacky deck on Much Abrew about nothing, which he doesn't expect a pot to uh, necessarily even win. <laughs> But the deck looks super fun, and so people buy the cards. And, yeah. it's, and it's not that there's anything new. This could be some deck that had been lying around Tier 4 in the format under discussion for years, months or years. But it's just that the you know a YouTuber or a Twitch uh, streamer brings it to front of mind for a bunch of people. 10 or 20,000 people see it. You know, a few hundred run out to buy the pieces for the deck. And for as long as that deck is circulating as a meme through social media, you have a chance of selling into that hype. But as soon as it dies out, people are going to get distracted by the next, you know, the next shiny thing. Yes. And I think that in general, hype spike is the, the your meme concept here is fair. And it's definitely what you're going to see the most of um, for the most part. Uh, or the hype spikes are and the meme spikes are definitely a subset of that where it's Something goofy, something fun. Oh, we're gonna play the, you know, the Atog deck on stream or the the Teferi deck, whatever things of that nature. Um, and I, I think those are you've done a pretty good job of describing them as well. And the hype spike being the the most common one, right? Whether it's from uh, somebody doing well with a deck and there being an unexpected card in it or uh, the commander news, you know, release of the new commander themes or the throne of Eldrain themes. Those are all, we're all excited. We want to play with it. Let's, uh, and I guess, I guess I'm looking at your documentation here. It, would you, are you putting those under news domino? Is that your thought there? 
Well, when you mentioned the uh, the card uh, suddenly being like showing up in an archetype, that's the third type of hype spike, which is the emerging tech spike. So this is not that the card that there's any specific news in terms of new product or an unbanning or a banning or anything. This is that somebody is fe- featured, you know, featured deck list during a tournament coverage or um, top eights a major tournament with tech that was not previously known or at least respected. And a good example of that would be a card like Hardened Scales. You know, Affinity was a, you know, pillar archetype in Modern for years. And the concept that people were going to put Hardened Scales into that deck and that that would become the dominant version of the deck was very hard for people to swallow because it was new. And so as it first emerged and we started talking about it, I distinctly remember uh, you and many other people being skeptical. Nor And healthily so. You should always be skeptical of emerging tech until it has proven itself repeatedly. But you have to be in tune with whether it is in fact proving itself because that's going to determine what, how deep you should go. And you want to, you're riding a really fine line there because if you wait too long, you're going to miss the profit. And if you get in too early, you're going to have too many losers. So, um, you know, emerging tech is a very important piece of the puzzle and a little harder to capitalize on these days with significantly less GP coverage. For sure. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, eh, like we have a lot less GP coverage, but you still have the news. I mean, the, the top eight list will get posted. It still circulates Twitter. I feel like even if we had a GP without video coverage, uh, if there was something really cool in the top eight, we would know about it. But I think one of the mechanics that is missing from the market or significantly less uh, prevalent now that was popular for quite some time was you know, round four of a Star City Open, um, you can still get a deck tech. But GP coverage lacking that same effect on the weekends where maybe Star City is doing standard, but the modern turn GP is not being covered, removes that impetus for people to run out and buy a card. And then they have more time to think about it and less FOMO, and that leads to less spikes. And one could argue, especially if you're anti-MTG Finance, that that's a healthier market anyway, because in a lot of cases, people should be waiting <laughs> to get secondary and, and tertiary confirmation that these cards are real. Because sometimes decks just do well for the first day of a tournament and then get nowhere in day two and we never hear about them again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I am not going to debate the get into all that so much. But yes, I, I see where you're going with it. All right. So um, there are some other spec types that are different than hype spikes. Um one of them I is a ladder climb. So a ladder climb is a spec that is a slow burner that never gets heavily targeted for any particular reason. It's just a good card that drains slow and steady out of the market for some period of time. And then you wake up one morning and a lot of the time this happens with foils more than on foils. And you check the price on TCG and you notice that the card is at like $10, then the next one's at 11, then 13, then 15, then everything else is at 20. And you realize that if you scoop those low hanging fruit, the only copies left in the market will be 20 and you'll be able to test a new plateau. Um, And I would argue that both of your picks this week uh, fall into that category. Both the Mishra's Bobble foils and the Sky Shroud claim foils look like they're headed in that direction. 
we definitely like these types of picks, right? They're, these tend to be the ones that fly under the radar pretty well because you look on TCG player and the lowest copy is 11 bucks and you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's still kind of low. Um, it's easy to glance at it and miss it, but then you go in and you look a little closer at the prices in the, the supply and you realize you're like, oh yeah, these are, you know, they're 11 bucks, but like, there's not that many before this is 15 and then not many more before this is 20. So we're pretty much there as it is. Um, so I, and I think it's easy. It's, it tends to be easy to spec on these types of cards. Honestly, the, the hard part is, is finding them. Yeah. Essentially. And one of the reasons that's tough is that most people are leaning on the indexes at MGG price, at MGG stocks, at Echo MTG, et cetera, Goldfish, everybody, um, that are all drawing their information for the most part from TCG player and a variety of the vendors in North America, sometimes from Magic Card Market overseas. And we tend to focus, if people pay attention to our, you know, our weekly movers and shakers, to cards that are rising at least 50% or more. So if you have something that burns slow, like if something goes up 5% a week or 2% a week, and over the course of the year it rises 100%, that can often be under our radar until we take a look at it and notice the latter. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. It can take time before we pick up on some of this stuff. All right, so one of the other ones that you know we've harped on about for years, and I would argue that we were at the forefront of uh, attempting to exploit from a player perspective, um, and I say that because vendors have certainly been doing this for ages, um, but players uh, probably less so uh, until just recently, um, is the Arbitrage Fairy. And the reason it's a fairy is because it magically brings your cards over from far, far away. Um, and, I, and, I, and the reason I characterize it that way is because I think that's a, the way a lot of people kind of think about overseas arbitrage, that it's like this kind of nebulous complicated thing off in the distance that seems like it's going to be more hassle than it's worth when in fact yeah there's a little bit of effort involved but once you get it set up and you've got your shit together things get real in a hurry um and you start realizing wow like sure i could buy this stuff over here and here and here in my usual spots but if i look overseas i'm going to save 40 50 60 percent oh look this thing spiked last week but it's still cheap in japan or it's still cheap in europe um and, you know, if you're an MTG price pro trader, you probably got access to people in most of the major regions of the world that are willing to do partnerships with you. Um, and you and I can both attest to the fact that arbitrage fairies have made us a lot of money in the last few years. Yeah, arbitrage is definitely a good one. Um, you know, I know our listeners have listened to us go on and on about that a lot, so we don't need to sell the, the benefits of it. Uh, but it's an entirely different strategy. And for a while, it was really all I was working with uh, because it was just so much easier and so much more reliable. It was like, yeah, I could spend money speculating on these cards that like I have a pretty good idea what they'll do. But uh, like, why not just take the sure bet? So um, definitely an appeal to do that type of thing in those scenarios. Uh, it's But like you said, it's it's difficult to put it together for the most part can be kind of daunting for somebody who's new to the process. And I respect all that. Um, but it's worth it once you get it going. And it's worth talking about the mechanics of why and how a big part of it is that different formats are po have different levels of popularity in different places. Like commander is clearly much more popular in North America than it is in Europe or Japan. Although I'm sure that over time that may change. Um, it's also a function of, you know, for instance, in the EU, 
um, there's a really high VAT, like a, a value added tax of like 20% or so um, that is wrapped into the prices of things. So if you see a $10 card, it already includes the tax. So if you strike a deal with a vendor to take 100 copies of something off their hands as part of some kind of group buy, they can subtract that value because you're not in Europe, so they don't have to charge you that tax. They get to offer you a really exciting price for you, and it doesn't it's no skin off their nose because that was just money they were going to have to hand off to the government anyway. So you've got some legal conditions that are working in your favor. And you might get still get stung for some customs at the border, depending on where you live. But in the U.S., that rarely, if ever, seems to happen. In Canada, it's a little more sketchy. Um, you can certainly you're certainly facing a 13% HST on a lot of things over 100 bucks. Um, but those opportunities are interesting, at least, and depending on where you live, can be very, very exciting. Um, one of the other things that makes it work is that you can often trade off. Um, services with your partner overseas. So for instance, you know, my partner in the UK is going to send some of his cards to me when he sends me mine, and I'm going to sell them for him here and there, wherever it seems like I can get him a good price. And in re return, you know, that me scooping up 12 copies of the Magic SDCC set, which would be kind of hard to unload at a significant profit in North America right now, maybe he's going to unload, you know, two or three of those for me in short order and and earn back some of that credit and then we can instead of sending money back and forth and bleeding percentage points we can just keep a little tally of who owes who what and never actually exchange the money yeah and i think both of us have used that to great effect it's a it's a good way to uh to try and balance out the equation there um without feeling like either one of you are taking advantage of the other one uh and also not necessarily to have to split honestly not to have to split profits sometimes because um, it's like, well, you know, I'm going to keep my profits, but you're going to get to keep yours doing your other thing. So there's some, some massaging there, the relationship, but um, definitely an, a way to go. And you could, you know, for the arbitrage, it doesn't even necessarily have to be between countries, right? Like that's obviously the way that you and I are familiar with it. And a lot of our listeners are too, but you could, for instance, um, I have found uh, using the some of the MTG Price Pro Trader tools that I could find a store who was selling the card for $7 and it turns out this other store was buying it for $8, but also you could get the credit bonus so for 30%. So basically I could buy it for cheaper at one store and then sell it for more to the other one and get some arbitrage going like that. So that's a, you know, it tend to be smaller margins, but uh, again, very consistent and reliable. Especially if you get really cheeky and you use the address of the second vendor for the order from the first so that you never actually put your hands on it and you basically drop ship it into the buy list. Yeah, yes. I haven't actually done that before, although I have absolutely been tempted to do it. Uh, I was afraid that I was going to get um, swatted with that or, uh, you know, get my hand swatted doing that. I did have an instance where I uh, found that a store was selling the card for less than it was buying it for. Okay. <laughs> so... So I, and this was, I think this was strike zone, pretty sure it was strike zone. I saw that it was, a, it was Airbus is Titan, I think. And I, they, you know, they were selling it for whatever, seven and buying it for nine or something. So I emailed them and said, look, I can buy this card. You can ship it to me. And then I can turn around and put it back in the mail to you. 
Or how about you just give me the store credit, diff- the difference in store credit for the copies you have and you fix your price. Uh, and then he proceeded to send me an email and told me uh, in no uncertain terms to fuck off. And <laughs> that guy, to this day, I hate Strike Zone Online because I'm like, hey, you have a gap in your pricing. You want to toss me some store credit for pointing it out to you? And he just told me to get back. That, so no, no, you, you don't hate them. That, that's just a joke because they're a vendor team partner of mtg price so clearly we would not hate them oh well sure (laughs) all right so uh there's another type of spec that's worth discussing um that's related to buy list uh, and this is the bottom to buy list opportunity and what this is is the card that is ultra popular but maybe it sees a lot of reprints and i think the the penultimate example of this is soul ring so it basically gets guaranteed a reprint in every set of commander decks every year, but it's in every single commander deck, and they only print them one in each deck. If Soul Rings showed up in a booster product at some point, then this this scenario might collapse because you might have more Soul Rings than you have demand. But when you only print them one per deck and the decks are meant to be played with, you have to take the Soul Ring out of the deck and put it into a different deck to affect the demand profile. And so what te- tends to happen is around this time of year, soul rings get very, very, very cheap. We just picked up a f- several hundred in Europe uh, as a group buy through MTG Price Pro Trader at like a dollar thirty or dollar forty or something. And the plan there is that we are going to buy list them over two dollars, you know, within the year. Um, and unless something very dramatic happens, that's probably a, a no-brainer. And it might not seem like a tremendous amount of money, but the percentage return is quite excellent, especially if you're doing it in, you know, a thick stack of of copies. And because the card is so popular, buy lists tend to be willing to take large quantities of the card, which is also an important thing to consider. Uh, A card that's going to go up, you know, from 75 cents to $1.25 is not going to be that exciting if you can only unload four copies at a time. But if they'll take 400 it's significantly more attractive, especially if there's a 30% buy list bonus on top of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are, are uh, you know, one of the fun ways to go with this as well, right? Like uh, a little trickier, um, but still but still profitable if you're able to find the angle on them. Very, very important to be picking the right cards. I would say, I would argue another example of this that's, you know, not... It's hard to approximate Soul Ring's <laughs> potential to survive these kind of scenarios. But another one would be like the Ley Lines. Ley Line of Sanctity and Ley Line of Anticipation, recently printed in the uh, course at this summer, are probably going to be similar style picks because they have broad uh, enough implications that they will recover before they see a reprint. And it's not going to be like on like specific news or anything it's just going to be a slow steady march back to whatever their price was before the reprint mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I, I i tend to stay away from these it just doesn't seem to quite work for what i want out of this but i think it's a totally valid technique there, there you know there the, the important thing here for for people to remember is there's more than just uh oh, I think this card is going to be good. I'm going to buy it and it's going to make me money down the road because people will spend more on it. Like there's a lot of different ways to think about these cards that require essentially a lot less risk. And in fact, I would say that the number of cards I buy that have 
low risk profiles is way higher than like the pure speculating that I used to do um, back in the day before all the information was available before we understood as much as we do now. Oh, I, I keep very close to my desk a pile of specs from early on in when I turned to the corner and decided I was interested in MGG finance. Um, call that 2014 or something like that. Uh, the first six months, a lot of really bad standard picks that never went anywhere. And I keep them close to my heart so that I can remind myself of humble beginnings. Um, <laughs> final spec type. And I'm sure there may be a couple more we're missing, but this will cap it for the week and we'll see what, whether there's feedback from the, the listeners. Um, the high end hold. This is your buying a black Lotus and holding it for my kids uh, graduation kind of thing for your retirement. Um, clearly a lot of that going on uh, as those prices skyrocket more and more of it's going on amongst the financial elite <laughs> of our community. Not that many, uh, not very high percentage uh, of the magic population that can afford a hundred thousand dollar card. Um, but it'd certainly be an extremely profitable for people that were in more than five years ago. Um, guys like my dad that finished entire sets, you know, 10 years ago are sitting real pretty. Um, and people that were integrated cards early when that seemed like a scam or a fad are very happy with themselves. And I would call it, this is kind of like the blue chip investing of Magic the Gathering. This is the buy a $10,000 thing and watch it go up by an average of something like 9% per year, kind of at about the same rate as real estate does in a hot market. And you're never going to get the same kind of returns that, for instance, I'm getting on my, my spec portfolio. But you're also go going to be relatively liquid vis-a-vis -a, -vis a single transaction should you choose to exit. You know, if the only thing you were holding is a beta Black Lotus, you don't have a whole lot to worry about. You're mostly what you're facing is opportunity cost lost by not having that money invested more actively. But if you have three kids and a busy job, you just may never have that time or that interest. And so that might be your play. Right. And I would lump all of the like pseudo specs, the, the like crossover between I want to play this and it's a spec cards in here because you can do the same thing with um you know certain edh foils uh maybe like the elish norn phyrexian cards type of thing where you or even if it doesn't have to be that extravagant can be much lower be like well i think that this is a card that i want to own and play with i wouldn't mind owning it and playing with it and also i'm buying it to spec on it you know you know it's a perfect example is a masterpiece soul rings do i personally want to have spent three to four hundred dollars on a soul ring for my collection no but i bought a bunch of them and i'm using them in my edh decks until you know until they sell so it's kind of a nice crossover gives you uh you get to get a little little use out of your specs in that regard i, I would argue that's a whole nother category that we that i missed from this list let's call that the playable yeah. the playable hold um and i think you, you nailed it right on the head edh foils that are very unlikely to see a reprint um or where even if it did see a reprint it wouldn't necessarily affect the original pack foil um are a very good blue chip option as well because whether it's a masterpiece or something like you know a relatively old edh foil like a grand arbiter augustine the fourth i just sold one of those for like 90 bucks or something yesterday 
um, or I'm trying to unload a foil Risk the Redeemed, which in theory is somewhere between $100 and $150 right now. Um, that's the kind of stuff you can throw in a deck and not really worry about too much for a while. And I would argue that both my Brea and Atraxa decks are built in that way, where I take pretty expensive Russian foils um, or reserve list cards and throw them in there. Dual lands, I have CE and ICE cards in there. Um, beta, um, you know, your Nether Voids, your Masterpiece Soul Rings, your Russian Foil Smothering Tithes. Happy to just dock those in my most played EDH decks and then check in on them every once in a while to see, you know, where we're at. And they're, they form the ultimate backup plan. <laughs> if everything else went wrong in my speculation activity and I was left with nothing, I would still have, you know, 20 or $25,000 in EDH decks that I could unload. Yep. Yep. And, you know, I'm in essentially the same boat where, you know, you, you keep them and you're like, this is this, I like the financial outlay of this card. And also I like owning this card to play with it. So it works well, uh, works well for you in that regard. And, and the only caveat obviously on that one is don't triple sleeve and don't spill beer on the table. Like <laughs> my, my decks are laughably annoying to play against and with because they're in my attracts deck at least is in hard cases. Um, so it's like clackety clack, clack, clack when I'm shuffling it, but I'm also much less susceptible to damaging any of those cards. So I still get to play with them. You're going to be annoyed to be at the table with me a little, but you know, hopefully I'll buy you a beer and make it all right. Well, yeah. And you know, that, that, that I I don't go to that extent, but I'm also not playing with like a $2,000 Russian foil planeswalker for the most part, the most expensive cards in my decks is probably the aforementioned soul ring, which isn't too bad. Um, but I think you're totally right that, you know, you have to go take, take pains to make sure that card is still sellable as near mint after the fact. Yeah. You you don't want to be taking them to MP or turning them into a Douglas Johnson special. Um, if your plan is to sell them, if it's the, if it's the deck that you're going to, you love and cherish and plan to never resell and you don't care about the condition that's a whole different thing that's just collecting um because it's not a spec at that point right right all right so well that's that's the types of specs and how to handle them things to think about um hopefully that was useful for helping people square away some of their opportunities and compare it to um you know the things that will work for them happy to carry on this discussion in the pro trader discord later this week when people have got their hands on this podcast. Um, guess that's a wrap. Where can people find you online, Travis? Well, James, I am on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I write every Monday for the Watchtower series here at mtgprice.com. You guys can find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com. And I am constantly haunting the ProTrader Discord, helping our members get the best value for their dollar. Uh, once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the aforementioned MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. 
And to wit, uh, we have another winner of our $25 gift certificate provided by our lovely sponsor, Cool Stuff, Inc. This week, it is Big Buttery. Big Buttery, you have won the $25 gift certificate. Go spend big so that Cool Stuff continues to give us these sweet, sweet prizes. I want to know what's buttery. Yeah. It's big. It's, what's big and buttery? That is the question. I, I'm, big hoping it's, what? I'm hoping it's his cookies. Because I like mm. me a cookie with a little butter in it. I, <laughs> I, every, every other I, option I, sounds I, terrible. <laughs> there's there's a lot of options. I am Travis Allen. I enjoyed our episode here. Episode 183. Yeah, 183. Uh, good time was had. And I will see you again next week. Oh, it could be his popcorn. I like popcorn. Uh, thank you, Travis. Uh, we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Findings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.